Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Gordon Stewart, pastor here at Westminster Church and moderator of these Town Hall Forums on the subject Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. Today's speaker is the Director for Marine Exploration at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and director and founder of the Jason Foundation for Education, Dr. Robert Ballard. Explorer, geologist, oceanographer, and engineer, Dr. Ballard will be remembered by history as the designer of the underwater survey sleds that have revolutionized deep sea exploration. In addition to designing the sleds, Dr. Ballard has made more than 100 dives to the ocean floor and has spent more time there observing and mapping than any other marine researcher. Dr. Ballard's expeditions are now part of the lives of thousands and thousands of school children through the Jason Project, 400,000 involved at this moment, a project which sparks students' interest in math and science, as well as deepening their appreciation for our dependence on an ecosystem we have only begun to understand. Known internationally as the man who located the Bismarck and found the Titanic and explored it and proposed declaring the site of the Titanic an international memorial in order to protect it from commercial exploitation. Dr. Ballard may, most, may likely be remembered 500 years from now for his scientific discovery during the Galapagos hypothermal expedition sponsored by the National Science Foundation. That expedi expedition, using one of the sleds, produced photographs showing large communities of crabs, tube worms, and giant clams clustered around the hydrothermal vents in the ocean floor. Against all previous scientific theory, the expedition team discovered unknown creatures who thrive in perpetual darkness living around these vents. Speaking of an expedition to the Cayman Trough, another expedition, Dr. Ballard wrote in the National Geographic, I stare out of my port at the black magnesium-coated outcrop just two meters away. It's hard to realize that in front of us lie rock layers from deep within Earth's crust that never before have been seen or sampled in place in the sea. Just then, a large pink octopod flies by my port, upstaging the geological importance of the moment. The excitement of my first dive to Alvin's 12,000-foot limit the chance encounter with a strange and rare marine form caused me to forget momentarily why we are here. Instead, I imagine what it would be like to live in this alien world of eternal darkness. Please welcome to the Town Hall Forum Dr. Robert Ballard on the topic, The Titanic to Telepresence, Living the Dream. Thank you very much for those wonderful introductory remarks, and I want to thank the Westminster Town Hall Forum for inviting me here today. And uh, for those of you that are in the audience, uh, I want to uh, remind the radio audience they didn't have the wonderful opportunity moments ago to hear the, uh, the Little Mountain Elementary School uh, sing their song uh, about my expeditions. It's the first time anyone has ever written a song about what I have done, and so I want to thank the 100 students that are here today from, from Little Mountain Elementary for that song and also for their involvement in our Jason project, and I'm sure they'll be moving on from Little Mountain to explore the big mountains of life. Research uh, now suggests that all humans on the face of our planet come from a common heritage 
that can be traced back to the plains of Eastern Africa and that during the last 200,000 years, our ancestors journeyed forth from their birthplace to populate the planet. First across the large Eurasian landmass and finally into the New World, during the waning years of the Great Ice Age, just a few tens of thousands of years ago. Now, many factors led to the global expansion of our forefathers. The excitement of exploration, a driving desire to escape oppression, a lust for economic gain, or simply in pursuit of a better life for themselves and their loved ones. For whatever the reason, the fact remains that our species now dominates the planet. We have all but conquered many of the forces that held us in check for oh so many millenniums. Instead of being controlled by the forces of nature, we are now beginning to control nature itself. Our activities have altered the ozone layer, led to the buildup of CO2 in the atmosphere, and we have certainly begun the destructive forces and destructive activity of the great rainforests of our planet, and we are continuing the premature extinction of so many plants and animals that we once lived in harmony with. Now, demographers now tell us that there are more people alive today than have ever died since our species began to populate the planet. And that that number will double again as we struggle to make it through just the next century. Despite the rhetoric of the need for population control, we continue to multiply. Entering an era where reproduction is now endangering our existence instead of ensuring our survival. During the Rio Convention on the Environment, for example, the impact of global population on the environment was not a major topic of discussion. Perhaps uh, our tombstone will read that the human race came and went, but it was politically correct. But I'm not here to talk about the control of the world's population. Even repressive measures in some countries have failed to accomplish that. I'm simply an undersea explorer from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution who would like to talk about our relationship with the sea and what I think the future holds based upon our continued growth and then the uh, unsatisfied appetite our species has for more space. Now, despite our glo the globe-trotting uh, capabilities of our species, we have not colonized any new land masses on the planet since the colonization of the New World, which began in the 15th century. And let us not forget uh, that humans already inhabited the New World long before Christopher Columbus arrived in the Bahamas in 1492. Today, the primary activities of our species is still confined to less than 20% of the Earth's surface area. Historically, we have been held at bay by an aquatic world that resists our colonizing ways. Instead of turning to the sea, we turned our eyes and our hearts to the heavens, convinced that we, if we only tried, we could swim in the canals of Mars and grow tomatoes on the surface of Venus. Like Superman's race, which despite its intelligence, succeeded in destroying its mother planet of Krypton before Superman escaped to Earth, for many years we've been telling ourselves that we could escape our destruction of Earth and flee into space. Space has become a convenient way out of facing our problems, a way we could avoid facing our destructive behavior and the continued growth of our numbers. To me, however, the most important image to come out of the space program 
was when an astronaut on his way to the moon trained his cameras back over his shoulder onto Earth and captured an image of a very, very small blue-green planet embedded in a black velvet void of nothingness. Mars has no canals to swim in. The atmosphere of Venus is deadly to us. And we can't even land on Jupiter. And if we could, we lacked the muscles in our bodies to stand up and walk around. Space may be the last frontier, but the public's disenchantment in the space program reflected in President Clinton's recent reduction in funding for the space station program forces us to conclude that Earth is the immediate frontier which we must explore. Ironically, we now have better topographic maps of Venus than of Earth. We know more about the physiography of a small volcanic cone on the far side of the moon that has never faced us than similar features in our own exclusive economic zone off of America. When President Reagan signed into law the bill creating the exclusive economic zone of America, the size of our country doubled. Yet most of this modern Louisiana Day purchase remains unexplored. And vast expanses of ocean floor in the southern hemisphere have never had an oceanographic research vessel ever go over the top of it. The largest single feature on the surface of our planet is the mid-ocean ridge, which runs around the globe like the seam of a baseball, covering almost one quarter of the Earth's total surface area. Yet despite its tremendous size and the critical role it plays in the origin of Earth's outer skin, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon and others played golf and drove around in cars on the moon before the first human being ever entered the largest feature on Earth, when they dove into the Mid-Atlantic Ridge in its Great Rift Valley in the summer of 1973. We now know that there are more active volcanoes underwater than on land. Great plains exist there that dwarf those in America, canyons far grander than the Grand Canyon, and the mighty Rocky Mountains would fit in a very small corner of the Mid-Ocean Ridge. Now, given the emergence of advanced robotic technology, and fiber optics, microprocessors, virtual reality, autonomous vehicles, telecommunications, and many other new advances, the ocean is no longer a barrier to human activity. The deep abyss is now our backyard, and working at 20,000 feet, which represents 98% of the world's oceans, has become routine. Given our exploding population, given our diminishing interest in the promise of the space program, and given the continued development of advanced technology, I truly believe the 21st century will usher in an explosion in human activity in the sea. I am convinced that the next generation, a generation from Little Mountain Elementary School, will explore more of Earth, that is the 71% that's underwater, than all previous generations combined. Just as Lewis and Clark explore exploration of the Louisiana Purchase led to the settling of the West, the exploration of the sea will lead to its subsequent settling and colonization, but it will be much more limited than we think, and I want to address that. The ocean is not going to be a way out either. It holds tremendous promise, which I want to talk about, but it will not be a relief valve to our problems. But what we will see is that the gathering and the hunting of living resources of the sea, an activity that is characterized by primitive societies on land, will be replaced at sea by farming and herding. High-tech barbed wire in the form of acoustic, thermal, and other physical barrier techniques will emerge control and manage the living resources of the oceans. The same debate 
over the destruction of the rainforest diversity on land in favor of farming and ranching will repeat itself as the great biodiversity of the barrier reefs of the world will become threatened by large-scale farming of the sea. Oil and gas exploration and exploitation will continue moving into deeper and deeper water. We now have already discovered and mapped oil and gas reserves down to 12,000 feet, which represents the average depth of the great oceans of the world. And each year, the oil industry bring production wells online in waters deeper than the previous year. Underwater parks, memorials, and reserves will expand in size and scope until the Titanic will be easily visited by tourists using teleoperated robots from the comfort of their home-based telecommunication center. We now know that ships and other pieces of human history that fall into the deep sea enter the deep freeze, characterized by eternal darkness, freezing temperatures, and enormous pressures. Some estimate that there is more human history preserved in Davy Jones's locker than all the museums of the world combined. During the six centuries that marked the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, for example, Imperial Rome lost more than 10,000 commercial ships into deep waters of just the Tyrrhenian Sea, which is a, a very small body of water west of Italy. Over the last two years, we discovered and explored many of the Allied and Japanese ships lost in the cold waters of Iron Bottom Sound. Ships which still have their camouflage paint clearly visible, their torpedo tubes still loaded, and depth charges resting in their racks. Ships with their main guns still pointed at one another as if the battle was still going on. We also know that the Black Sea and its anaerobic bottom water will give up some of the oldest and best preserved wooden ships in the world, lost in a time similar to when Jason and the Argonauts traversed the Black Sea in search of the Golden Fleece more than 4,000 years ago. On a far less glamorous note, landfills on land will give way to the placement of waste in the vast abyssal deserts of the deep. Perhaps the storage of nuclear material will follow. We cannot continue to place our waste material in our backyard, only to have it pass through the drinking waters of our children on its gravitational journey to the sea. We continue to hope for solutions to our waste problems, which are not coming fast enough to keep up with our exploding population and the continued creation of complex waste byproducts. Our present strategy goes something like this. If we force people to live in their waste, they will think of ways to clean it up. By placing it in the sea, it's out of sight and out of mind, and a solution will be not be sought, even if placement in the sea is a wise choice. In fact, present law even forbids scientists to determine if the use of the sea for waste storage is good or not. We can't even do the experiments. It's against the law. Dare we gamble with the lives of our, the next generation on a prayer and a dream by continuing to pollute our drinking water? When you take into consideration the heavy taxation on gasoline, High-octane gasoline at the pump, even with its taxes, is less, expense, less expensive than untaxed Perrier. And the price of drinking water will only rise until wine is a cheaper alternative. People are already living in their wastes, and solutions still elude us. In recent years, we have discovered major mineral deposits in the deep sea, similar to those mined for centuries on the island of Cyprus. They contain high concentrations of copper, lead, and sulfur, as well as silver and gold. And their formation continues today in the vast hydrothermal vent systems of the Mid-Ocean Ridge. These long linear mineral deposits will be processed in the future using the very geothermal energy that drives the crustal processes that led to their formation. 
Some of these magnificent vent areas will become the Yellowstone parks of the deep sea, leading to future arguments over their commercial value versus their tourist value. The unique chemosynthetic life forms that presently process the toxic material associated with the vent communities will hopefully be bioengineered to convert a portion of our waste products into less harmful or even commercially valuable byproducts. These exotic creatures will also help us to understand the early origin of life on our planet, as well as the potential for life on other planets, which we, which we once uh, ruled out for the lack of a nearby friendly sun. Other marine forms will prove to be important players in future pharmaceuticals. We know, for example, that hydrothermal vent animals right now process highly carcinogenic materials yet have no tumors. Whether this all occurs during the next generation's time on Earth, well, time will only tell. But the seeds of all that I have said can already be found in programs presently underway. Last summer, for example, we traveled to the waters off the Irish coast where the great luxury liner Lusitania was sunk by a German U-boat in 1915, helping to precipitate America's entry into World War I. That expedition, which was sponsored by the National Geographic Society, is just the first step in a long-term program to not only explore this historic shipwreck in hopes of solving its long-standing riddle, but is also the first step in the creation of an in-situ museum on the floor of the ocean, accessed from shore-based visitor centers using remotely controlled vehicles. But if America hopes to play a leadership role in this brave new future, we must prepare the next generation to meet this challenge. For the last five years, the Jason Foundation, which I helped to create with EDS and the National, Science, National Geographic Society, has sought to prepare this next generation by taking hundreds of thousands of young students on live voyages of exploration and discovery to the far reaches of our planet. A few months ago, during our exploration of the rainforest and the Great Barrier Reef system of Belize, we took more than 400,000 students and 10,000 uh, teachers to study a, uh, a very difficult, before these students could go, they had to study a very difficult science curriculum. And as a reward, they were then able to explore live the beautiful biodiversity of these unique ecosystems using satellite downlink technology around the world, in which they were not only able to, to explore, but they were able to actually take control of our exploration robots through the satellite and do their own exploration. Now, better understanding the oceans and the land surface beneath the sea is critical to our understanding of the planet as a whole, for I think of Earth as a living, breathing organism on whose back we live. Yet the collective action of the human race now threatens Earth's very life support system. The continued growth of our global population is the single most important issue facing our survivability. And although studying the oceans is important, it will not provide the human race with a place for significant expansion. The vast majority of our planet lives in total darkness, in freezing cold water, under tremendous pressures, and covered with featureless mud plains. No human should be sentenced to live there. It would be cruel and unusual punishment to be forced to live in the deep sea. The more I explore the deep sea, the more I appreciate that small segment of Earth that is green and sunlit, the very segment we're destroying. The rainforests of the world, which covers only 5 to 8% of our planet's surface area, contains 80% of all the green vegetation of the continents. Yet we are cutting down the rainforests at a rate of 21 million acres a year. In less than 80 years, they'll be gone. And so will be the tremendous diversity of life that now calls the rainforests their home. Preserving 
One acre in Minnesota is a wonderful act of conservation, but in no way is it equal to preserving one acre of rainforest around our equator. We must wake up to the fact that Earth is a small planet in the heavens and that the space upon which we live is smaller still. So I ask all of you to think about this issue and what steps you can take to help save us from ourselves. First and foremost is the education of the next generation. Since the actions of the next generation may in fact be the most important actions taken in the history of the human race. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Ballard. At this time, we invite those of you who must leave to do so while the ushers collect the questions from the audience. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church of downtown Minneapolis. We invite the members of the audience here in the sanctuary to submit your questions to one of the ushers at this time. And those of you who are listening on the radio may call in a question to Dr. Ballard by calling 332-3421. Today's speaker is Dr. Robert Ballard, the director of the Center for Marine Exploration at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and director and founder of the Jason Foundation for Education. Today's forum is co-sponsored by the James Ford Bell Foundation. Dr. Ballard, if you would please return to the podium. We will be begin with the period of questions. I have questions which have been uh, submitted, far too many of them for us to cover today, but uh, a number of questions from the children at the Kenwood Elementary School here in Minneapolis. When you were little, did you like to explore? Why yes. or why not? When I was little, exploration was uh a very important part of my life. Uh, my hero was Captain Nemo uh, from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And I had the fortune the, to live by the sea as a child. I lived in San Diego. And uh, my favorite friend was the oceans. And I always wanted to be the first person to walk on the sand after the tide came in. I wanted my footsteps to be the first footsteps in the sand. And I also loved to go along where the tide had brought in its treasures for the day and to be the first person to search along that tidal zone for a shell or for a float or for something that came ashore. So my entire life has been spent walking around. Another question from the children at Kenwood. Did you want to do what you're doing now when you were a little kid? Yes. I did. I always wanted to do, I never really knew that I would find the Titanic. Uh, I knew I was going to try. Uh, so one doesn't really know if you're going to succeed unless you try. And so I wanted to do what I'm doing and I've been lucky to do it. Here's a question that reminds me of uh, the question about Hal in 2001. Are you the boss of Jason? No, uh, Jason has, sort of has his own mind. Uh, but certainly, Jason is, uh, is my surrogate. Jason can go where I can't go. And Jason Jr., which could go inside the Titanic, could go. I just couldn't get in the, in the window, or I would have tried. But my submarine didn't fit. But it was big enough for Jason Jr., so we're sort of a team. Thank you. The law of the sea established at the United Nations some seven years ago has not been signed by the U.S. Would you comment on this? Well, the reason that the United States did not sign that law, which had many, many marvelous things about it, but the, the hardest one which caused us not to sign basically said that if, if uh, groups or organizations spent tremendous amounts of money to develop the technology. There's no technology on land that can work in the sea. You can't 
You can't take a car and drive it down there. You can't just take the technology that we've used on land and take it into the sea without, without a tremendous investment to change that technology. The problem was the way the law of the sea was written that if you developed the technology that could go into the sea, you had to give it up with no compensation. And that just meant there was absolutely no incentive to spend billions and billions of dollars to develop a technology if you were not given the right to use it, that you had to yield it up to people that had not invested. So industry just said, well, then, you know, fine, but we're just not going to we're not going to develop anything if we can't get a return on our investment. So in, unless there's some economic incentive that's fair, uh, I, I agreed with that not to sign that. Thank you. Our ability to modify the world outstrips our ability, either politically or technically, to correct our own errors. What warnings would you give those who will seek to exploit the sea in the next generation? And in addition to that, there are questions from the children submitted earlier from Kenwood uh, about your proposal to protect the, uh, the area of the Titanic. Well, again, I think I, I don't look at, at when I was down in Belize and I watched people chopping down the rainforest, I did not see evil people. I saw a farmer having children uh, trying to support his family and, and the only option was to, the only sense of, source of income was to grow rice and to, and to sell timber. So it was not an evil individual that was doing this, but what the problem was that there were just millions and millions that were creating millions and millions of people. Uh, if, if, for example, people just defer uh, the age at which they bear children. Uh, Measuring ocean temperatures by sound waves. Oh yes, I'm familiar with the controversy. <laughs> could you speak to, to the issue of, of measuring the ocean temperature by, by blaring sound waves beneath the water? Right. What impact will this have on marine life? Would the benefit of the information outweigh the cost to marine life? And another person asks, what's the controversy all about? Okay, let's start with the controversy. Uh, people are familiar with what a CAT scan can do in medicine to help create a three-dimensional image of your body. So imagine a technology uh, that can, like a CAT scan, can create a three-dimensional look at the ocean's body. How is the ocean's body constructed? It's not just a bucket of water. The ocean has very complex structures. It has storm patterns. Imagine the ocean as a very thick atmosphere. It has storms, it has waves, it has thermal fronts, it has an incredibly complex internal structure. Very complex, and just go and make a little measurement here or there. It's like taking the pulse of a body and say, okay, I know everything about that body. Scientists have developed a way of using acoustics, it's called tomography, to be able to use acoustical sound to create a CAT scan image of the oceans. The reason is, is that the oceans are, are the single most important characteristic of our planet that makes it unique. The absence of our oceans and Earth would become Mars or Venus. The oceans have a tremendous ability to absorb heat energy from the sun and give it out in a real logical way and give us the mild climate of our planet. Well, the scientists who began doing this developed a sound system, and the sound system puts out noise, and the concern is this. Will that noise interfere with creatures of the sea that use sound themselves, whales, for example, and other organisms? Unfortunately, we don't know the answer. So the question is, do you stop it all together, and I consider that fearing the darkness, fearing the unknown, or do you do research to find out the answer to that? The scientists who were proposing their research, as I understand, I really don't know that I'm, I've, I've not been embroiled in that controversy, I've only read in the paper, is can there be a medium ground found? 
where one can do research and find out if it is harmful? Or do you just say, well, we don't even want to, we don't want to find out if it's harmful, we think it might be, and so we're just going to outlaw it. And I think that is not progressive thinking. So I'm in favor of trying to find out if, in fact, it does any harm. Uh, and so that's where it is. But it's gotten pretty emotional. And normally when issues get emotional, the, the crazy extremes get in the game, and, and their voices thunder out the middle. And uh, I don't know who's in charge right now. I hope the middle. Thank you. Could you please give some details regarding next year's program for Jason? I know it deals with space, but how will this subject be explored and presented? All right, next year's Jason project will involve a look into space, but just like our space program today, it will cause us to look back at ourselves. Next year's pro program deals with why is Earth the way it is? Why is Earth so unique? Why does it have life? Why does it have an ocean? Why does it have an atmosphere? Yet not too far away, its inner sister planets of Mars, Venus, and Mercury don't. So to answer the question of why Earth is unique, we one have to look at ourselves, and then we have to look out into space at our sister planets and explore them and, and see what's different about the two of us. And then once we during the latter part of the program have sort of gotten to better understand why Earth is the way it is, then we'll ask the question, well, there are there other Earths outside of our solar system, which takes us into the cosmos. I don't know if you read the newspapers recently, but just a month ago, scientists discovered the first planets outside of our solar system. So they're out there. So we're going to talk about those new discoveries of the first planets that are outside of our solar system, and can they be like us? To do that, our, we will home base ourselves on an active volcano in Hawaii, on Kilauea, in the Haleakala, and I mean, in the, in, in, and, uh, in the volcanic observatory, and, and the whole up on Mauna Kea, which all the beautiful telescopes that are looking into the heavens. And we will explore volcanism as a part of the program, because volcanism is a, is what created our oceans. Volcanism is what created our atmosphere. When a volcano erupts, 95% of what comes out of it is steam. And the oceans of our planets came from the volcanic degassing of our planet early in its history. So we will stand on an active volcano and uh, take students and teachers on a tremendous journey. In terms of the destruction of the rainforest, Brazil, what measures are being done to curb the large logging companies and the beef producers? Well, quite honestly, if you look at where the rainforests have vanished mostly, it's in Southeast Asia. Uh, that's where the rainforest has been mostly decimated. But there's a lot of pressure. I mean, here, all the, the, the rainforests are primarily in, near the equatorial belt. And this is where most of the third world most of the Ecuador, because it's sort of interesting. If you take, it's, it's, it's fascinating. If you take a globe and you plot advanced uh, civilizations, uh, United States or whatever, in technology, etc., they live in a very narrow belt around the planet. In other words, our America is wonderful because God made it that way. <laughs> we didn't. We were just lucky to come here. Uh, and if you look at how the planet is structured, most of the countries with resources and wealth and et cetera are in a belt from about, oh, 30 to 45 degrees north latitude and 30 to 45 degrees south latitude. It just turns out there isn't any land down in the southern hemisphere. That's why there aren't, quote, advanced countries. Uh, as large as Europe and, and the United States and Canada, et cetera, because there's not much real estate down there. In the area of the equator, uh, Mother Nature presents a very ominous set of conditions into which to live. And that's true if you go up into the high latitudes. It's pretty tough to make a living there. So here we are telling countries who are having a tough time making a living, you know, 
don't destroy your rainforest, even though we may have totally rewritten the landscape of America. So there's a tremendous concern about being hip uh, hypocritical. The problem is, hypocritical or not, it turns out to be a very big problem because we can't preserve the rainforests of Minnesota because there aren't any and they play such a critical role. So there's a delicate balance that must go on. But again, it's the population that's forcing the destruction, not some government that says, I love chopping down trees. So again, it comes all the way back to the same problem, which you will not hear about in the press. Isn't it amazing? You don't hear much dialogue about global population. It's not politically correct. And that is exactly what's going on in, in Brazil, is an exploding population, a desire of those people to have a life like anyone else. And so we talk about rainforests when we should be talking about who's, you know, what forces are chopping it down. Would, would you speak, just to pick up on that for a minute, would you speak to the, uh, to the argument that the reason for burgeoning population is the insecurity of old age and the need to have children who survive uh, so yeah, that's definitely a, has been a, the, the hedge on, on that, but, but uh, I think that that's less and less a factor. I think it's just a factor of, of, uh, of, of our cultures that, uh, as I said, uh, the more and more women become mainstream. Uh, childbearing is an important part of their lives, but it's not the only part of their lives. And as they begin to have the opportunity to be humans and to do all the things us guys like to do, uh, they will find that having five children is not necessarily in the equation. So again, uh, I think that the, the, the more that we can uh, give women the opportunity, I think it's crazy, for example, to increase the population we're not, when, we're not, when we're not taking uh, uh, advantage of what we already have. I think, I'd look at empowerment of women and women's liberation as just logical. I don't have to be emotional about it all. Isn't it, why, why double the mouths when we already have mouths we're not using? Why double the minds when we're not using the minds we have? And so I just think it's logical to, to, to take advantage of the assets we have instead of creating more people when we're not using the ones we've got. And so I would just, again, uh, argue that uh, the, the more that we can spend time and energy on this issue, it is the single most important issue, uh, the better off we're going to be. Thank you. How did you come up with the idea of the Jason Project? Are you happy with it? And, um, of course I am. <laughs> how would you like to see it move ahead and change in the future? Well, the Jason Project actually grew out of my discovery of the Titanic. I didn't discover the Titanic thinking that young people were going to find it interesting, quite honestly. Uh, my goal for the Titanic expedition was to demonstrate that an, in an incredible new technology of exploration was coming online and that we were going to be able to expl finally explore our planet after being blocked from that exploration by its watery nature. And so I really went out, and I did the Titanic because I figured if I found the Titanic, that was something that public could, 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 could uh, appreciate. And so I went after it as a demonstration of this technology. What was the byproduct, which was wonderful, just like going after hydrothermal vents to look for water and finding life, in many cases you find something even more interesting when you go on a journey of discovery. And what I discovered on the Titanic was young people. I received thousands and thousands of letters from young people like those here today from Little Mountain. What I did, I've, tried, I've been trying to figure out what button did I touch, and it turns out I touched a lot of buttons, but this generation of young people are very technologically literate. They know about computers, they know about videos, they know about the high technology of telecommunications they will easily traverse the highways, the electronic highway. They, 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 they know the roads already. They know the road maps. They know how to drive on it. And we don't even know how to drive. They know how to drive on that highway. And what they have been conditioned by Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and all of the adventure, 
programs like Star Wars and, and uh, with R2-D2 and CP3O. This is their, their idols, uh, is, is high-tech people in adventure. But none of it had been uh, real. I mean, Star Trek was wonderful, but it wasn't real. And in many ways, our expedition was the first Star Trek expedition for their generation. It was real. We had real robots. We were doing real things. We were having to fight for our lives against Neptune. We were doing great exploration. And that hit, a button went off. And they wanted to be a part of reality. They don't want to be embedded in fantasy. They want to be a part of reality. And they wanted to be a part of our expeditions. And we saw in that interest in Titanic an opportunity to excite them in science and technology. Most importantly, we wanted to change their image of what a scientist is. Because if they rely solely upon television or Hollywood to present the image of a scientist, you will continue to get Revenge of the Nerds and Back to the Future, where a scientist is portrayed as a social outcast, that a learned individual is a social cripple that is not capable of functioning in mainstream America, and they hide in their ivory towers, and that they really hide there because they don't know how to deal with reality. And that's the image you get when you see Back to the Future, uh, the scientist who combs his hair with a wall outlet. You know, that's, we laugh about the nerd. We laugh about the crazy scientist. It's the, one of the most divisive things that we do because these young people are mainstream. They want to fit into society. They don't want to be an outcast. I've had so many young people tell me, I love science, but I don't want to be one of those weirdos because my friends will laugh at me. I want to be liked by my friends. And a scientist is not something they hold in high esteem. That's another major issue. The second major issue is we constantly see all scientists are white males. You know, you've got to be a white male if you're going to be a scientist. That is a complete travesty of reality. In our testing of our young people, we have 400,000 students in the Jason Project. Of those students, when we test them, we cannot tell whether it's a boy or a girl. We cannot see their, their sexuality in the questions. They respond the same. So the raw material is there. We need to have more women and more minorities in science. And the best way to do that is to role model that. They have to see their equal in the game. And so we, very important part of the Jason Project is to involve female scientists, and there's a lot of them, and minority scientists, and there are a lot of them in the battle, in a leadership position so that they can say, if he or she can do it, then I can. And they have to see that, and they're not seeing it portrayed. It's always a white male in every movie. One of the reasons I worked hard with, with Sequest was to get the chief scientist and the chief engineer of Sequest are women. You know, and that was a battle that had to be won to create the right role models. And so that's a very important part of the Jason Project. I think, I think you can see we're winning. You just answered one person's question. One person asked, are you the guy from Sequest? So we now know the answer to that question. Well, what? it's a battle. Sequest is still a battle, and we haven't won it yet. I don't know if we'll win it, but it was a good try. We have time for. Um, one, maybe two last questions. One of, the, one of the little known facts about you is that you were denied admissions, admission to the Scripps Institution of Oceanography for graduate study because you lacked a knowledge of physics. Enough and, knowledge. And yet enough physics, enough yeah. knowledge of physics, and, and here you are today. What would you say to the children and to all of those high school seniors who are Waiting for Getting the those mail bad to letters arrive. right now. The admission letters are arriving and they're going to be acceptance or rejection. Well, my heart was broken when I wasn't admitted to Scripps. 
but all it did in me was to, to strengthen my resolve. Uh, I have learned not only from that, the first time I looked for the Titanic, I failed to find it. The first time I looked for the Bismarck, I failed to find it. I have learned that failure is a companion in life, and it's something you live with to reach success. Failure is not something you can avoid. Uh, you're not going to be measured by whether you fail or not. You're going to be measured on how you deal with failure. When you get knocked down, and life will definitely knock you down, and for a moment it'll be very comfortable down there. You know, no one's bugging you, you're laying on the ground, uh, you're not causing any trouble, you just got knocked out and everyone seems to assume you're out for the count. And you sit there and I think while you're lying on the ground saying, did anyone get the license plate of that truck, you should say, now what caused this? Why am I laying on the ground? There's a great saying that a wise person learns from their mistakes and a fool makes it twice. Well, that means that you, a wise person failed, but they knew how to deal with it. And that's the important thing. You're going to get knocked down, whether it's scripts telling you, sorry, you haven't, you're not good enough. And I sure went and showed them. I might tell you something you don't know, is three months ago, uh, Scripps awarded me an honorary appointment Wonderful. at the Scripps Oceanography. <laughs> So, now it took a few years. You did a good job of teaching. It That's took a wonderful. few years, but I finally showed them the airs of their way. That's great. That's great. That's great. Congratulations. Um, Dr. Ballard, on behalf of the Town Hall Forum Advisory Committee and all of us who are listening on the radio and here in the hall, and on behalf of the co-sponsor for this program, the James Ford Bell Foundation, I thank you for challenging us to remember Earth and its blessings its finitude, its uh, incomparable beauty, and for challenging us to care for it, and for making room here and in America for the nerds, for those of us who don't fit in, for those of us who have native curiosity and who want to explore our questions, and for your marvelous encouragement of students to learn the sciences and math and to explore the wonders of the earth and the universe. Thank you for being here today, and uh, we hope you come back and see us soon. Thank all of you for being here with us.